right, let's open our scriptures to, um, we're going to be in chapter 4 tonight, and uh, we've had some, some pretty uh, in-depth homework this week, I think. If you've been able to plow through it, it's probably plowed through you this week. And if you, it's one of those things where I had a week where I, I did it, some things I wrote down, some things I didn't. But I wanted to be open and, and honest before God over some things. And some things have been answered, some things not. Um, but some, some places that are so truthful, so incredibly boldly truthful that expose us um, to a God of grace and to a God of mercy. And so if you've backed away from it a little bit this week, I pray you'll step forward into it. Because as the word says this week, we draw near to him. And where we think these difficult places are to face is exactly when we need to see him face to face. So we want to go forward in those places where maybe we've we've pushed them back or, or just the reality where we see patterns in our lives or we see struggles, those that first day of work where we're looking at the battles that are going on in our heads and and I know I looked at some things and I've talked to some of you and you're thinking, I've struggled with this for a long time. Sometimes even as l- the words would come out of our mouths, as long as I can remember, I've struggled with this. As long as I can remember, the struggle has gone on. So I pray tonight as I prayed here and as I prayed through this this week that I know God will speak to us. His spirit will bring healing and wholeness and just maybe just different kind of insight tonight with the word that we're going to be looking at. So let's open to James 4, and I'm going to uh, start with verse 4. Actually, no, I'm going to back up. I'm going to read uh, starting with verse 1 because I want us to be all on the same page. So if this was a week when we just didn't get everything done, the whole context makes tonight's lesson together much more significant. Verse 1 of chapter 4 of James. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? That's the text that we, uh, I think the first four days, and then we did study the rest of chapter 14, or chapter 4 this week. Um, Tonight what we want to look at is the specific verse, and I think it was day one or day two that we were introduced to the verse and then told we would be looking at it more in depth together. And that verse is found, it's, it's nine, it's verse nine, the first, the first sentence where we see these three words come out that say grieve and mourn and wail. And if you looked at that, you're thinking, well, what happened to the count everything joy part of the first chapter of the book of James? Where, where does this come into play and why is this, is, and it's written in, the, um, in, in, in an imperative tense where it's a command to do so. So we want to understand what exactly, how was James inspired? Why was he inspired to write this? And in the placement of this, this, these three words, why is it placed in the context 
um, from the verses really almost from James 1 all the way up to this point, but very specifically in this place. So when is it appropriate to turn our joy into gloom? The first bullet point that you're going to fill in is when we've consciously traded the joy of the Lord for the highs of the world. When we've consciously traded the joys of the Lord for the highs of the world. Now, in the context of our study, and what we've seen in chapter 4 is we have this, we even did it in homework this week, where we saw uh, the diagram, we made the diagram where we placed ourselves in the middle and we had the world on one side and we had God on the other side or we had Satan on one side, God on the other. And we were looking at the, um, in the context of the deliberate choice of where we want to be and the choices that we make and the, um, the struggle that there is with that sometimes. And what James is calling not only individuals, but even the church, I believe, what we're looking at this in the context of this is that if we deliberately choose to do that, if we, if we make the trade, now if you're sitting there thinking, Have I, if I become an enemy of God, if we're, if we're concerned about that, it's probably not where you are. It's when we make a deliberate choice to become friends with the world. And we had the wonderful example in chapter 4 about Abraham. Remember when it's talking about Abraham being a friend of God, and we're going to talk about that in a, in a little bit deeper in just a minute. But the choices that we make, in fact, on your uh, teaching guide here, on your, as you fill this in from the New English translation, it says, it reads from verse 4, 4, whoever decides to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemies. enemy. In other words, it's when we make a move or we make a choice... When we, when we know we have made a deliberate choice to become friends with the world or we've chosen the things of the world over the things of God, it becomes a deliberate choice. In other words, we choose sin over repentance and we choose sin over holiness. When we know what the decision is, we know what the choice is, and we make a deliberate um, choice to go in that direction. Now, you may think, well, is that a, you know, in a, in a big sense? No, it's in a small sense. We know when we, we have had enough lesson on our tongue to know that when we open our mouths and what we speak, it becomes a deliberate choice. We know that. We know what comes out of our mouths. And we know whether we look like the world or whether we look like Christ in that situation. We know what our actions should be, and we know what choices we make. Sometimes we just don't slow down long enough to think about it, and we default back to, I can default back very quickly to what my mouth will go first, way ahead of the thought process. So it can be as subtle and simple as that, or it can be um, just a choice of sin, or a choice of decision over what does or doesn't glorify God. And the scripture is so clear here. We're either friends with God or we're friends with the world. There's a choice to be made. And as we grow in this, as we grow in our relationship with Christ, it becomes clearer and clearer to us. I mean, I can think back and choices that I would have made uh, 15, 20 years ago, now I look at it and it's no, it's no choice at all. It's simple. Because God grows us, he sanctifies us where those choices are and where those choices are made and how we make those decisions. And God grows us in that. He is gentle to a certain degree in that until he knows that we know what we're making those decisions and then it comes under discipline. He will discipline us. And, but the choice is what he's saying is with mercy, choose to glorify me. Choose to be friends not with the world, but with me. So it's when the, we make a deliberate, when we trade the joy of the world or the joy of the Lord, when we think that we will find that joy in the world. And what this week's lesson, as I looked at all five days and, and looking through all of the chapters that we've been studying, what it all boils down to in our hearts is that we all desire. We all desire there's not a human being that walks around just, that doesn't have desire. Well, the question becomes, what do we desire as human beings? 
What is it, it, are there some common things that we all desire? And I think that we can come to a place, at least rest on a few of those things. One would be love, an unconditional kind of love. We desire that. I think we desire purpose. I think we desire a need to be needed. I think we desire satisfaction. I think there's, those kinds of things are really common to all of us, believers and non-believers. That's just humanity. There's something within us. And so as we think about that, I think it gives us a huge perspective on those who are Christ followers and those who just aren't sure about all that yet. You know, that there's common desire. But what happens with us is that we either choose the world's ways to satisfy those desires, or we will look in the scriptures to see what will truly satisfy the desires of satisfaction, what will truly satisfy the desires of love and of need and of purpose, because we're either going to choose one or the other, and some of us have struggled over a long time in some of those categories where we flirted with the world thinking, well, we're just not getting it there. Let's look for it here. Let's look for it there. And we're trying to find it. Some of us, we've looked, we looked at the world for a long time and came up shallow and hollow and empty. And then in that relationship with Christ, we found the fulfillment in that. But some of us sometimes where I'm looking back and I think, oh, did it really, am I, should I go back? Do I, look, do I look to that thing? Do I go back to that thing? Because will that bring me true joy? Will that bring me satisfaction? Will that bring me purpose? And we find this struggle within us. But what this verse is saying, what the warning starts, is that it is the deliberate decision to find that sort of human purpose in anything else but Christ himself. And it becomes a battle. And as we walk closer to the Lord, I will tell you the battle wages even stronger even stronger, because there's certainly the battle that goes on around us, the spiritual warfare over us, but we have this battle within us. And in some ways, that is God's gift to us. There's a conviction that falls over that, so that we will grieve and we will mourn over that decision where we've looked to the world for something that we know we should have looked to God for, where he would bring the fulfillment to us. And we've just flirted and as James says, calls us adulterers in that, where we've, we've become loyal, where we've come into a relationship with the world when we were called to be separate from the world. So that's a time when James is saying there is a time to grieve and to mourn and to wail over sin. And the beauty of it all is that we're called to come near to God in that situation. He's not pushing us away. It's just the opposite. The enemy would like for you to to think that when you're at that place, that's when you flee from God. That's not what the scripture says. It's exactly the opposite, isn't it? It says you come near to me and you flee from evil. You resist evil in that sense. So when we grieve and we wail and we mourn over sin in our lives, that's when we've got to realize that mercy, there's mercy to be had. There's grace to be covered and to go to God. So if we're in that place where... You know, we, we may take that one step and we take another step and we take another step and we think, I just can't go back. I just can't go back. That's just the enemy feeding us lies. That's our minds because we look at God so often in a human sense. We look at God so often in how we treat others sometimes if we're wronged and wronged and wronged and we push away. It's not God we've sinned against him he is calling us closer to him closer and to flee from and to resist that evil and to be changed and transformed so there is there is an appropriate time for our joy of searching for the lord searching for the world and when turning for the joy of the lord the second little bullet point there underneath is what when it's appropriate to turn joy into gloom is when we don't take God seriously. This just kind of blew me away when I looked at it. And then when we look at the scripture um, in verse 5, chapter 4, we see, uh, 
as the, as the text comes down to verse 5, it says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason? Do you think that Scripture says without reason? So in other words, when you're reading through the Scriptures, now here's what I like to do, and I'm sure you do too, as you're reading through the Scriptures and you see a beautiful promise. I mean, you see something glorious that God has promised you, and you're going, I believe that. I take that seriously. I'm going to count on that. I'm going to believe that because we love the promises. What about the warnings? What about the warnings? What about the discipline? Do we take God seriously? And if we have gotten to a place in, in the text reading and, we're, and we're in a, where we know that we've flirted with the world, we've kind of sided up to the world, but we know what God says about that, and yet we take it a little bit flippantly, we don't take it seriously, and we're thinking, you know, was, was the word really serious about that? Was God really serious when he said that? And if we reach that place, then that's an appropriate time to turn that kind of joy and flippancy towards the word and be broken over it. And again, called back into relationship with God. Don't ever, ever forget that. When we realize that through the conviction of the spirit, we're being called back to a place of relationship with God. So there is a time when we... When we just think, we just, do we take God seriously? In the NET, James 4, 5 reads this way, or do you think the scripture means nothing when it says? Or do you think the scripture means nothing? In other words, if we were to go to 1 Corinthians six eighteen, where we are told to flee sexual immorality. We're told to flee sexual immorality. Was God serious when he said that? Do we take God seriously with those kinds of warnings? Do we take God seriously in Proverbs when he talks about pride comes before a fall? Do, do we look at that and go, well, that's the warning. Am I going to take God seriously over that? In Galatians 5.15, we are warned that our mouth can devour one another. Do we take that seriously? When we look in James and we can go from the very first chapter all the way up to where we've studied, we talk about the tongue and desires. And when we read something like this from James chapter 4, verse 1, when, it's, when the question falls, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Can we take that seriously? Did God really mean that? And we look at that and we don't just cast it off or just go, well, it can't be me. It's not me. And then we look at verse 2. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want, and you quarrel and fight. Do we take the word of God seriously? Did he really mean that? And the answer is yes, he really did mean it. How did he mean it? So for our freedom, for the discipline of it, so that we would be wise to it, when I think back and look over, um, we're back to the, um, that first chapter when we were talking about temptation and um, verse 13, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after, you remember these verses? We haven't forgotten them, I hope. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, and when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do we take that seriously? Do we look at that and go, that's, that's true. I've seen that happen in my life. And so the next time it comes back around in my life to take that scripture seriously, to know that God really did mean that when he said it. When he commands us to love one another, did he mean that? Do we take that seriously? When we're commanded to love our enemies, did God really mean that? Do we take it seriously? And sometimes when we know we have literally gone and chosen the opposite direction and we stop and think about that, it brings a conviction and it brings a brokenness. It brings grieving. It's a holy grief and it's a holy conviction. 
And it's a holy wailing over that because we know once we have realized that, God brings us back to a place of restoration. That's where mercy literally does triumph. Because as James talks about so much about judgment, we read that word all throughout the book of James. And truly, if my sins were to go before the Lord of today, of today, and fall under God's judgment instead of his mercy... The sins of my sins of today to fall under God's judgment instead of His grace. But that's what that's the God that we're in relationship to restore me, and so that I can do it differently through the power of the Holy Spirit the next time to live out the day differently, my mouth differently, my actions differently, my relationships differently. There's a time for that to turn to grief and mourning and wailing. And then there's a time of restoration. And through forgiveness, there is joy. And joy is restored. Because ultimately we know what will ultimately end up down the road, whether it's day one or day 365, that ultimately if we seek the world for those things, it will not bring joy. It will not bring happiness. It will not bring satisfaction. It will not bring fulfillment. Did God really mean that when he said it? Yes, he did. Why do, we keep, why do I keep going back? Why do we keep going back? If there is a time, there is a time to turn, to take that attitude, turn it towards grief, and then uh, forgiveness and then joy of the Lord. The next bullet point is when it's appropriate to turn our joy into gloom is when we are arrogant in or about our sin. Now that just sort of tags on behind the last bullet point when we just don't take God seriously. But then if we add arrogance to that or if we connect pride to that, then what we've got is self-righteousness. What we've got is self-righteousness. What we end up having is an attitude of superiority. And what we end up having is an attitude of prejudice towards whatever or whomever, and it is just, it is not glorifying to God. And there's a time for us as a body and as a time for us as individuals to understand that and to grieve and to mourn and to repent and to change and transform, to draw near to God, to receive God's forgiveness and mercy and grace over that. So there is an appropriate time for that. The last one, the last one is when ridiculing sincere believers is our idea of hilarious. Now, what in the world does that mean? What, again, think about the context. Think about the time when this was written. When the church was so early, we understand there were no denominations, right? I mean, we, we do have that picture, we know that there, was, there, was, there wasn't a church on every corner. There wasn't a different denomination. There was one fellowship of believers. And in it's such an infant state, yes, it had the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit within it. He was uh, the supernatural equipping of the early church, and yet people were involved. Now, we know what happens when people get involved in church, don't we? When we become involved in church as believers, we know what happens. And so the warning is so beautiful here as we begin to think about how the early church, how God began to guide the early church into how it treated one another. When we think about the scripture overall, and we look at the New Testament, I'm always driven by the fact that yes, there's so much in there that we would love for the world to grasp and to take on. But the New Testament books, the New, Ch New Testament letters, who were they written to? They were written to the church. So often when we look at principles like that, we cast that out onto non-believers. And that's not the point. The point was within the body of Christ how we treat one another. 
And as we look denominationally now, 2,000 years later, how do we look at one another and the differences that we have? Yes, there's a time when there are doctrinal, theological statements that there is a way and a manner in which we stand on. But then there are things about how worship and how things are around the denominations and whether we are slandering them or whether we are making fun of or whether we are putting down or whether we are discouraging. That's the body of Christ. And the warning is just as clear in James for the first century church as it is today. And it's a warning involved. And it's so simple and yet so profound. So much of the warning through the book of James is our mouths. Is it not? So God was already, through these first, through Galatians and through James, was already warning the church about its voice individual and its voice collectively. And how would the church make a merciful, graceful, loving impact on the world? And if we can't get it right within the body, if we can't get it right within the family, if we can't work it out the way God intended between one another, how in the world... How in this world will we be attractive to the world around us? These are, these are amazing principles given to the church at its birth, and they will be just as commanding and just as convicting until Christ comes to get his bride. And there's been so many strides of good things and yet so much for us to look at. And I think those, we've, a lot of us have been in Bible study together for a long time. And I love the fact that we're looking at denominations and churches in here. And there's, there's truly, truly a sisterhood through those. It's, it's glorious. It's truly glorious. But to remember as the body, as a collective body, the infighting and the divisions that we do because basically back going to the desires and the use of the mouth, how destructive it can be. And that should cause us wailing and mourning and weeping. And then as, a, as individuals and as collectively as the church body to draw near back to God because what would, uh, we know the verse, a house divided against itself, what's it going to do? It's going to fall. It's going to fall. The enemy loves that. He knows that there's division within and within the collective body that division causes not defeat. It won't, the church is, is undefeatable. I mean, God ordained the church will not be defeated. But I tell you what, it can take some bruising and it can take some battering and it can take some hits and there is enough coming from the world without us doing it to one another. And James is so clear about this to see the beauty of the universal church. It says to, um, I love this quote as I was kind of doing some research on this as well this week and Charles Spurgeon said there's a vital connection between soul distress and sound doctrine there's a vital connection between soul distress and sound doctrine in other words as we study the scriptures and we look at it literally as James said as a mirror and to see how what do we look like in this perfect law of freedom. What do we look like? And we look into this mirror and we don't see what we want to see. And it should cause the grief and the mourning, not to condemn, but so that we'll change. So that we'll run for the grace, run towards the mercy of God 
and be changed and transformed to bring healing, to bring healing. All right, the second part, that was we think about that, and that's some pretty heavy stuff. That's some pretty heavy stuff out of that one verse. But as we look over into James uh, 4, verse 11, we're going to see the encouraging part of this. And I think one of the things that became so clear through this lesson to me as we're thinking about obedience to God, and we're thinking about friendship with the world, we're thinking about friendship with God, and we're thinking about desires, and we're thinking about um, how we choose, make those deliberate, uh, in, intentional behavioral patterns and choices, and the things that we struggle with, and how the world comes up empty, and how God is fulfilling, and we're looking at all of those connections. And then we see how the church begins to connect with all of that, and how the body of Christ as, as, as a totality begins to connect with these commands and these promises. And if you've been around church for any length of time, now if you're, if you're walking in, if this happens to be, and it would glorious be the first night you've ever walked into a church, thrilled that you've walked into a church, glad you're here. If you've walked around church for a while, and you've been in church for a while, and I will even say this, if you've stepped up into any kind of leadership in a church to do something, to serve, then this might become a little bit more personal to you. This might ring true a little bit more to you. And as we, we're going to look at James 4, verse 11, and then we're going to look at this point. But in James 4, verse 11, where we read the warning, and again, it's a warning. And it is, does God really mean this? Do we take this seriously? Just as we were looking on the page beforehand, brothers do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. So in James 4.11, we have this warning again. We're coming from that point of mouth, aren't we? I mean, slander is the use of the mouth. And slander literally means when we have accused falsely. When we have accused falsely, or we've used our mouths in a very, very personal, destructive manner. Now, does that mean, and I'm just going to throw this out on the table before we look at this, what does that mean within the body of Christ? Does that mean that we just let everything just kind of slide along? I mean, does that mean that we don't call one another into accountability? Does that mean that we, don't, we do not look at things like this and call one another into accountability? And as somebody who stands before you and will say that, you know, as George and I planted this church, does that mean that we're, that we're above and that we're not called to accountability? You better believe that is not true. That is not true. We are called to accountability. We are called to the standard of Scripture. And we are to be humble before God and humble to the Scripture and to look into it. The verse that really calls this into question, I think, and clarifies in such a, a brief way, and I want to introduce this if you don't know it, but as we begin to travel through this, because I think what happens is sometimes we really do struggle with this issue about when is judgment appropriate? When is discernment appropriate? How do we use that within the body of Christ? Do we ever look at leadership or do we look at one another and are we able to say, are you lining up with Scripture? Is that okay to do that? Or is it just grace and it slides? But in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is where we really get, I think, a, a very clear statement on the answer to that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul is addressing, again, who is he addressing? He's writing, he's writing to the church. He's writing to the church. And he's talking about, this is about immorality in the church. A Christ follower. He's not condemning those who have not learned to follow Christ. That's not who he's talking to. So when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Paul is writing, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? I love that verse. I love that verse. What 
God. What business, what business is that? Do I love, do I care, do I want them to come to Christ, to know that, to become a, a, you know, part of the body of Christ? Absolutely. But what he's saying is not, it's none of my business to judge that outside of the body of Christ. Do you know why people hate church? Because we judge those outside of it. It's amazing. It's amazing. And what God is saying is, you know what? I'll take care of that. God says, I'll take care of that. That's why we have civil law. That's why we have civil laws. Now, that's a whole other issue, isn't it? But that's why we have civil law. But for the church to judge the... How are the unredeemed... How did I, as you know, you know I can look back and, and be... Know that I came to Christ at a very early age, but how would the how, how does somebody who is unredeemed living in the dark right now how do we expect them to behave or to live out life as those who don't know Christ because they don't? And so are we? Remember last week? Do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? Do we make a point and do we make the judgment over that or do we make a difference in that? Two totally different approaches. However, what Paul does go on to say, says, what business is of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And he says, God will judge those outside. So there is a call within the body of Christ in a way in which we are called to accountability to one another. And in Matthew chapter 8, there is a very clear way in which we are to approach those uh, in the body when there is immorality or when there are issues of sin at stake. And they're very graceful parameters. They're very merciful parameters, very loving parameters. And within the family to come to that agreement on those things. So it's not a call of judgment just to let everything go within the body of Christ or to let it go within um, the local church. That's not the call. There is parameters in which to do that. There are parameters in which we look at the Scripture and desire to be the body of Christ that looks like that because there's, just, there's greater cause, there's greater mission to that. But here's what happens. When we look at James 4.11 and we're, and we're uh, told not to slander, that is obviously a huge difference between slander and when we're calling one another to accountability within the body of Christ. Can we agree on that? It's two different ways. Two, that's entirely two different things. But what has happened, and as we follow along these next five points, is that, and she calls it the religious pop culture, where we hear so much and see so much, cynicism is one of our top risks. Cynicism becomes a top risk. And I think what her point here is not only the exposure that we have to... Um, I remember growing up as in Charlotte, one church, didn't know a whole lot about globally what the church looked like. Well, now we've got television. We've got, we're so exposed media-wise to all kinds of churches, all kinds of speakers, all kinds of platform, all kinds of different ways in which the church operates now. It's just totally and completely different. It also, that we can almost become very cynical over the body of Christ, but we also can become very cynical because we have been at the receiving end of some of the harshness and unmerciful and ungraceful acts within the body of Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? There's two things that can operate that can take a Christ follower to cynicism. Now, again, we're not addressing those who are, you know, kind of look at the church right now and, you know, do I, do I buy into that? I'm not really sure that's where I am. I need to know more. I don't, you know, whatever. There is a cynical approach to the church. The outside look, outsiders looking in, there's good reason sometimes why they look at the body of Christ with cynicism. But the point here is what happens when we as believers come, become entrapped with cynicism. 
And I would say it comes from two different things. Either one, we have just become cynical over the church where we just, we're looking at it and we, we're seeing the faults in the church. You know, maybe in our own body or whether it's universal or the cynicism comes because of what has happened to us in the body. And we become cynical and it's an entrapment and the entrapment of it, if you think about cynicism, and if you've ever been in that place, particularly in the church, in a church context, because I said, if you've ever stepped up, and this is like, this is probably not a great thing to say because you're thinking, next week I'm going to serve in the church. I'm going to step up. I'm going to take that leader. You're going, uh-uh, I went to Wednesday night Bible study. I am not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Uh-uh, not going to do it. But you know, you know, if you've ever taken that step into ministry, the unfortunate thing is we know sometimes we've stepped into a place where we can be harshly criticized, harshly hurt. Doesn't it just... You step up into leadership or, you know, you're so excited about taking that step of faith and then somehow the blow, and sometimes the blow is unintentional. Somebody didn't mean it. You, I took it that way. You took it that way. And other times it is. And it can cause a trap of cynicism. But what that cynicism will start to do, the hurt, if the hurt turns to cynicism, what can happen is that cynicism will take its place. The enemy will use it to a place where we think we are very, very smart. There's almost a superiority that's attached to cynicism because we think we figured it out. You know, we're, we're smarter. We saw what happened, and now we're smarter than that because we've been hurt. I mean, if it's been something that's been done through the body of Christ to us and it caused a gash or it caused a deep wound or it caused something where I've said this before, I think I'll just do TV church from now on. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're going to have some confession. I mean, I've, I've had that. In fact, I didn't even coin that phrase Somebody else said that phrase, and I loved it because I thought, I know what you feel like. You know, you're thinking, I just don't know if I can step back into church. Unbelievable, isn't it? Mm, unbelievable. I think I'll do TV church instead because I just won't get hurt. I just won't get hurt. Who did the hurt? One another one another, one another. I mean, I think James in this book that's so hard, do you, can we not see the love of God, though, over the body to give us the warning of it, to know what it could do to one another, to know why people sometimes are in church for weeks, why they step up to serve, and why all of a sudden they don't want any part of church anymore. And we become cynical. What in the world? What in the world? And it can cause such a gash of wounding to where we don't want to do church anymore. We just don't want to do it. It's a very unique trap that we can fall into. It almost causes, and it can cause, I think the extreme of that, as I thought through it, the extreme of that becomes where we're called to have a, a very healthy fear of God. What can happen with cynicism inside the church is that what we begin to do is we sort of cast that over to God, onto Him, and then instead of that healthy fear because we've been hurt, it becomes a flippancy. 
And that's all, that becomes the extreme of it all. Where cynicism can just take us down a road and a path to where we get to a place of flippancy towards the scripture, a flippancy towards, because we've been hurt. Have you ever been hurt to the place where it just, you know, you're just going to go to that almost, it's the cynicism and the flippancy of it. We just, you know, I just don't need that. So we go to the extreme of everything that we know in our relationship to God. You see how that can get a hold and become such an entrapment over us. The next five points, however, which I love as I was looking at, at Beth's lineup of this, is that these are the five top reasons not to get cynical. You know, where we take some, where, you know what, and tonight, Wednesday night, this doesn't solve. You know, we've, we're, we're now accountable for what we've heard. But I, I was thinking about that and thinking about the numbers of churches that are even represented here and the ministry that's involved in. And you could go on Sunday morning to your church and serve, and this could happen. This could happen. And so my prayer is that the gash doesn't happen and the cynicism doesn't set in because of who God is and what God is doing in the church. And there's so much now where there's virtual church. I don't know you know, how much you're on the internet or, or exposed to what's going on with churches. There's a lot of churches, and I am not bash again, not bashing it at all. It's just kind of making us aware of what is going on in the church community. And in a lot of big cities, nothing wrong with it. There is virtual church. There are a lot of churches that offer where you just plug in on a Sunday morning through the website. Now, that's fantastic. You know, if you miss a Sunday or whatever, and you just kind of plug in, you hear it, or if you're attending a local church and you're part of that service and you're part of that community, but you happen to like that pastor or that, and you like to hear the messages and you like to be, that, absolutely nothing wrong with it. But when that becomes church for us, and we see that in, in, in reading some articles and looking at it, where we're almost seeing a movement towards that, we're seeing a detachment away from the community of believers as God intended it to be, to where I think there's a lot of things involved there. It's a time and a busy issue. It's a I want to be independent issue. I don't want to be accountable issue. But cynicism could be it as well. Where it's just feeding into this whole thing of being completely detached from a community of believers. But here are, the, here are five reasons not to become cynical um, with the church and the body. The first one is that Jesus is still flagrantly changing lives. He is still changing lives. That one by one, one by one, that believers are still coming to Christ. There is still hope. God is still in the miracle business. And that people who are coming to Christ are still being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's exciting to be a part of. That transformation does take place within the body of Christ. You see it. You know it. We've watched it. Don't lose sight of that kind of joy. Don't lose sight of that kind of excitement of God working in the local church. Don't lose sight of every single individual life that needs to be touched by the grace and mercy of God. And don't let our own cynicism be the cause of that. If you're in a group of, of friends or a small group of people who are critical and negative of the church, get another group of friends. Just find some other people to hang out with for a little while. People who hope and people who encourage and people who still dream about ministry and church and reaching people. Find them in the church. They're there. They're there. And encourage one another. Instead of the negative and the critical and the cynicism that can uh, just give birth to things within the church. The second one is this, and I love, real people are doing the real thing all over the real world. Maybe we've lost sight of that. Real people are still getting into the real world with real people and making some difference in lives. 
And sometimes I think it's good just to get out and see that every now and then. You know, where we've just kind of back, for whatever reason, we've backed out of that. We've backed out of the ministry of that. Or maybe we've just gotten cynical over ministry. We've just gotten cynical over doing some real life stuff in the world, whether it's local or whether it's international. Either way. So many of you know I'm in touch with um, uh, two of our, the loves of our lives, Sarita and Sundar uh, Tapa in Nepal. And they had an adopted daughter who is now, she's got to be in her 20s. She's taken on 16 children in the streets of Kathmandu. And I, she posts pictures every now and then. And I see this one woman with six, just, just 16, you know, just 16 children that were found in the streets of Kathmandu. Just 16. You know, remember what I said, do for one what you wish you could do for it? Well, she's doing for 16 what we wish we could do for all of them. That is one woman who's taken on 16 children. Is that a real person making a real difference in the real world? You bet it is. And to draw encouragement from that, to know that the Holy Spirit is working, He's doing mighty things. Can He work through a bunch of cynics in the church? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Draw some encouraging people. Look at the scriptures. God is doing real things in the real world. And maybe we just need to refresh ourselves and revive ourselves and think about what God is doing, what he still desires to do, and become a part of it. Look at what your local church is doing. Step into it. Look at it. Be involved in it. See real people doing real things. It's amazing. It can be done. It's still being done. God has not backed off. He's not cynical. He's not cynical. It's amazing he's not cynical. He loves the body of Christ. He loves the body of Christ. We are his instrument. All right, third point is this. The appetite to study scripture is increasingly ravenous. And isn't that so true? Isn't that so true? If I think back to, and I, I think I told my age one of these. Did I tell my age one night this study? I think I did. I think I did. Everybody knows it anyway. But, you know, I'm at, I'm that, at that 51 point, um, to be exact, at 51. But I'm thinking back to my mom. She never sat down with the Bible study. She didn't do group studies like this. Think about how many opportunities now how that has changed from generation to, gen to generation. And now as, you know, 20s and 30s, there's so much. There's, in our community, we've got community Bible study. We've got Bible study fellowship. I'm sure your church that you attend has discipleship opportunities. Their Lifeway has just amazing Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. And there's a hunger to do Bible study. There's a Where did that come from? Did we just get really smart? No, it's the Spirit of God moving. You know, we didn't just wake up as the body and go, oh, let's study Scripture because we... Mm -mm, that's the Holy Spirit moving. That's the Holy Spirit moving the church. And we know from Scriptures that the church is washed by the Word and cleansed by the Word. There's a movement of the Spirit being... That's enough not to be cynical over the church, to get involved in discipleship in our church. You can't do that with TV church. You, you, you can't do that. You can't get a group of women together. In fact, I had somebody make the comment, a, a, a male make the comment just this week. He said, why do you not allow men in your studies? I said, because we don't want to dumb it down. I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just kidding. That was true. But I, just, just jokingly. Ju you know, just jokingly. But it's just, there is, there's such a, you know, a desire to study. So many of you are involved in community Bible study. And Bible study, you're in that 32 weeks and you're going, when are you going to start summer Bible study? When are you going to start it? Because you, you want that as a part of your life. That's God's hunger in your life. He's given you the desire to study Scripture. You, you love that. We want to be doers of it. We don't want to just study it. But that's a movement of the Spirit. When those kinds of community Bible study and BSF, they are international. You know that. They're international. If you don't know about community Bible study, you don't know about BSF, there are women at every table who can answer, tell you what that is and where it is and when it starts in September. Get, be a part of it. 
It's what God is doing. The fourth thing is that some long-standing barriers are breaking down. And that point is just that as we study together the universal church, doing things together, one of the things I love about just being on this side of the waterway, this church on this side of the waterway, we're able to partner with two other churches right here off of Highway 17 to do some things in this community. That wouldn't have happened in my mother's generation. In fact, when I didn't go to a church that starts, the denomination starts with a B and ends with a T, I was in big trouble. I mean, I think they thought my salvation was gone, you know? So, but then dad sort of reasoned it out and he said, well, you know, those other denominations, they need missionaries. It's like, oh my gosh, dad, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? But you just would not have, cro you would not have crossed the street to another denomination. They just wouldn't have. They just wouldn't have. I mean, it's now taken me this long to even, you know, discuss that I've, you know, I, I, I've been in other churches that are other denominations, and you know, it's okay. It's not that they hated. It's just that you just didn't do it. But we're seeing the movement of the Spirit of God where we know the body of Christ as a whole. Now, the fifth one, this one, as Beth has written it, and it, she really did do it with, with tongue-in-cheek, and um, she did it with, as this heavy lesson kind of comes to a close. What's that? Oh, four, did I not do it? Four? Yes, I did. Oh, you didn't do the fifth one. That's the fourth one. That's the fifth one right there. There it is. Did you? Okay, they need the fourth one. Ah. That's the barriers are breaking down. Yes. That's between the churches. Now, obviously, there's some barriers to be broken down to the outside world, but the barriers within. All right, now can I go on to five? That's it. I know we got. I need to put women up there in the in the sound. Uh oh, now I'm, uh -oh, I'm getting ready to get cut off. <laughs> I can. See, the computer is going. It's going. Says you're done. But as Beth said, if we become now again, I'm being. I am being sensitive truly, to those who have been hurt within the church. That there's some healing that has to be done if we've been hurt in church or where things have happened, where we've been taken advantage of perhaps or where you know, just wrongs within the church. And there's some deep places. That's where I hope God is doing some work tonight and that we, we want to push away from the cynicism of the church but there's also a place where if we've just become negative people and we're just sitting in church being cynical and judgmental and sitting back thinking that we are just superior and smarter and we figured the whole church thing out. And as Beth says in point number five, I love it. She, and on her commentary to this, she said, God will kick our tail over that. In other words, think about it. That there is a divine discipline there over us when we become cynical or we become critical within the body of Christ. Just forsake to be so. We know that Christ died for the church. He gave his life up for the body and to love the body of Christ, and to think about how we love one another. Is mercy triumphing within the church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again and again and again and again and again for your mercy over us. And I pray through this study as we are looking into this mirror of your word that we want to be the doers of mercy and the doers of grace within the body and outside of the body. God, I pray you have brought healing where healing needed to be, where cynicism has given way to its own kind of brokenness. Almost a place of defeat, of giving up, surrender, 
even to a place where, I, you know, I don't know if I can ever, that happens, I, I just, I think I'm done with church. God, I pray you will bring the healing and the love and the encouragement not only from you, but from the church itself. May we be that kind of instrument of healing. If there is a situation that any of us are in right now where words can bring healing, I pray that if somebody is thinking about should I, shouldn't I, can I, do I have the courage to say to bring healing? I pray that you will give the wisdom and the discernment where that is needed. Give us a greater desire to love you, a greater desire to study your word, and a greater desire to look away from the things of this world for our satisfaction, purpose, and needs and love and that we will turn to you face to face you are our enough in jesus name amen